As we've been going through the book of First Timothy, these foundations of faith that Paul uh, is to instruct to Timothy. When you come to a text like this, there is the tendency to hurry to verse 12 and let's figure out exactly what verse 12 is, is all about. And I want to caution that for a couple of reasons. One, it's important to understand the context of what Paul is teaching here. And we're going to spend a lot of time doing that. And we also just need to see why this is even here to keep it in context and not lose sight of that. So I won't be able to just go through every little detail and nuance if If you are very excited about that, talk to me afterward and maybe we'll do a Wednesday night with that. But I'm hoping that by going through this, we'll see the the big picture of what is being taught and why uh, ultimately is here. As Paul then is teaching this to these Christians, it is important to remember what he's taught them. He's told them to stay focused on the gospel, to not divert from the gospel to endless speculations and fruitless discussions, ultimately things that are a waste of time as they would pontificate about all these kinds of things rather than staying in the Word of God. He's taught them to be a people who are a praying people so that they would be praying to live quiet and peaceful lives, being godly and honorable and dignified in every way so that the gospel can be spread. And as he has been teaching that, that brings us to verses 8 through 15 in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And he's going to break down now a picture of ultimately what this looks like. What he wants godly men and godly women to be doing as they live their lives in a dignified, honorable, and godly way. You'll notice in verse 8 that he begins with the men and says there... I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And as I looked at that, that is a a, what seems to be a simple sentence that is awfully hard hitting. What Paul says to the men is first, they would be spread throughout the earth, bearing the image of God as a praying people. He says that first of all, that that in every place men would pray, that that would be a picture of who they are. Now we saw that back in verse 1 where the command was given that we're making petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving for all people. And so now here is a picture of men that they would be a praying people wherever they are found. And I think just right out of the gate, before we look at the rest of the descriptions, just think about the importance of what's being described there, of that in all places that we would see men who are a praying people, that are men who are standing before God and offering up their prayers before God, that that is a focal point to their life. In fact, as they offer these prayers, you will notice it says that I desire them to lift holy hands. And it's not them describing posture because we can go a number of other places in Scripture where we see all kinds of postures for prayer, standing, 
raising hands, kneeling, sitting, all kinds of different ways that people prayed. But rather, there is an image that is being described here. Men, I want you to pray lifting holy hands. The idea is that you have nothing to hide. You are coming before God with clean hands and saying, there is nothing dirty within me that I'm trying to hide from you, but I am open and honest before you. It would be very much parallel to what was stated earlier about that we would be a people who are coming before God with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, chapter 1 and and verse 5, as well as Verse 15, this picture of coming before God and saying, there's no hypocrisy here. I'm not hiding anything from you, God. My hands are clean before you. I am open before you. I am sincere before you. And my life is not stained. And I think that's such an important picture to to have in our minds that as men, we're coming before God, we are praying to God, and we are praying out of sincerity. It's not a show. It's not a requirement. It's not, oh, well, we have to pray. But honestly, sincerely coming before God with open hearts, with sincere hearts, sincere faith, clean hands, and saying before God, here is the request that I'm making. Here are my intercessions, my petitions, my thanksgiving. That we're open and honest in, in doing that. Remember the Apostle Peter notes the importance of that when he wrote in First Peter 3 and verse 8. And he was reminding the husbands there and saying that how you live with your wives is important to dwell with them in an understanding way. Or else your prayers be blocked. That they'd be hindered. Same idea that's being pictured here. As men, we are coming before God and we have clean hands. Open and honest, sincere before God as we pray before our God. And notice exactly what he puts his finger on. He identifies potential trouble areas. The rest of verse 8. He says, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling or disputing. Notice that contrast. God says that godly men are praying people, not disputing people, and not angry people. They're a praying people. And I want to take this moment and just to let the men just reflect here, just ask this question. So am I an angry person? Because notice what he says there. Not full of anger, not disputing. Are we an angry person? people and as you think about that question i think my first reaction is of course not (laughs) no i don't dispute i don't argue i don't do those kinds of things so maybe the better way to know that is to ask somebody who's close to you to ask your children ask your wife ask your friends would they say that you're an angry person that do you reflect a life of Godliness of holding holy hands before God? Or do you reflect standing before God in anger? Right along with that, he says, not fighting or quarreling. Ask ourselves that question. Do I like disputing? Do I want to argue? Do I want to have a verbal fight with people? Because this is picturing a lack of holiness. Notice what he's describing here. Godly men come before God with sincere hearts, 
clean hands, open and honest before God, not full of anger, not full of disputing, not the kind of heart that wants to fight or argue, but rather one that wants to come before God in holiness and in righteousness and in godliness. This is the picture that is being given. And I just, as I thought about this sentence that Paul stated, how much does our society need more men praying to God for themselves and for the world and for one another with sincere hearts and clean hands, not angry and not disputing? And it's quite a picture. And it's a strong picture of what a godly man is supposed to look like. What godliness would look like in this devotion before God of how he handles himself before God, how he approaches God and how he deals with others. A praying man who has a sincere heart, not full of anger and not full of arguing. It shifts in verse nine and he turns to the women and he says to them what their picture of holiness and godliness would look like. Verse nine. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Notice the, the focal point here is that a godly woman, their attention is not being drawn to the things that they're wearing but rather trying to draw attention to the good works that they do before God. It is a picture then of people would see your devotion to the Lord by the works that you are doing. In fact, we'll see that picture come out later on in chapter 5, where it will tell you about who are widows indeed, and just starts describing the good works that they were doing. You see that pictured in the book of Acts, of these women who are professing their godliness by the good works that they're doing for others. And so that's the focal point that he gives here, is not that women are drawing attention to their clothing or to their bodies, but drawing attention to God. And showing their devotion to God by the good works that they do. I think it's worth stating right here. I think that's terribly difficult for women to do in our society today. In an extraordinarily, extremely sexualized society that we live in. To be able to stand against that and go, no, it's not going to be about what I wear or how I look. It's going to be about showing God through good deeds. That is a challenge in our world. That is a difficulty in our world. But it is a picture of what a godly woman will do in her desire to show that God is important. And so the goal then is to have people see God through the good works that are being done. Now, as we come to verses 11 and 12, it is always important, but especially important in this text that we have an understanding of what the world looked like back then, as Paul would pin these words, because it will make much more sense of why Paul will say what he says in verses 11 through 15. If we understand that culture, it is important that we do not impose our culture 
and the way we understand the world and the way we exist in society and try to backward shove it onto the text because that's where the conflicts and misunderstandings and difficulties arise. So what I want to do is just take a moment and just reveal some of the things that were said and written about women in that first century Roman world to help you understand where Paul is coming from when he writes this. This is the Jerusalem Talmud. Now, Talmud were the collection of Jewish writings in that day and time. So here's all the rabbinical teachings. Here's one of the things that they had written down in that first century world. It would be better for the words of Torah to be burned than that they should be entrusted to a woman. That's Jewish thinking. That's rabbinical teaching in Jewish mindset in the first century. Babylonian Talmud. The men came to learn. The women came to hear. Men would be the ones who learn, not the women. They'll listen. They're on the sideline. But they're not supposed to be learning. That's reserved for the men. That's why the prior one, you might as well burn it than rather put it in their hands, is the mentality. Roman thinking was not far off of that, though. Roman thinking has... Uh, they were considered intellectually a second class and academically inferior. The education system was designed for the men and not for the women. They had an inferior legal status, and women were typically perceived and understood as their job was to bear kids. A couple of things about that. When we go through the Old Testament, you see a lot of that kind of thinking. Remember, what we talk about is if a woman didn't have a child, what a shame that was, because that was the societal understanding about those things. By the way, as much as we read that and we might shudder and flinch at that, we aren't that far away from that world. That was not like like America has never had this kind of thing go on. That's, of course, been a long societal thing over many cultures, over many centuries of different cultures of that kind of thinking. I remind you, it's women only voting about 100 years ago, uh, women being excluded from higher education in our own country. Sometimes we, we read these things and act like, well, that was just... You know, Neanderthal thinking from 2,000 years ago, but we're not that far removed from a lot of that kind of thinking. So the point being is that we not look at this with such a negative, you know, skepticism and go, wow, I can't believe that they thought like that. You might have a, a grandmother or great grandmother or somebody like that who, who might have told you as a, as a lady, you don't need to go to college. You don't need any of that. That world was very recent. And so when you hear now what Paul is doing, as he walks into this society where here is what Roman thinking looked like, and here is even what Jewish thinking looked like, listen to the things that he says in this. He says in verse 11, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now remember, in the Roman world, the woman was considered intellectually a second class person. 
The Jewish teacher said a woman wasn't supposed to learn at all. In fact, you might as well burn the Torah because it'd be a waste for it to be in her hands. And listen to what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, no, they're supposed to be receiving spiritual teaching and receiving that spiritual instruction. She should learn. She is to learn. Let her learn is what Paul describes here. What is one of the things that we see over and over again is in God's economy, woman is never second class. In God's economy, she is always in the image of God. And she is always an heir of eternal life. She is never put forward as lesser. She's never put forward as inferior or intellectually subset, substandard, unable to understand. That's never put forward by God. And what I want us to see when Paul would say something like this, it is our world where we read that and go, that sounds restrictive. In their world, that's an elevation. Let her learn. Let her enjoy the teachings. No, it's not a waste for her to be a part of the spiritual instruction that would be going on. Let her learn. She should be learning these things. And I think that's an important aspect. The continuation of the sentence is that she is doing this in a way so that she can be godly and dignified before God. Remember back in verse 2 we talked about we are praying to leaders and officials so that we may live peaceable, quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. And so she is to learn and she is to understand the scriptures and come to these spiritual teachings. And this is an elevation so that she is able to live the godly life, to live in holiness and to live with dignity that God wants. Now, what is particularly important is also the rest of that. When it says there, let the woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And again, when we in our culture come to the word submissive, (laughs) we we just kind of have this, I don't yield to anybody (laughs) kind of mentality in our world today. But it's important again to understand what the Roman world and how they understood that. First of all, we need to keep in mind, in God's world, everybody's supposed to be submissive. We shouldn't get stuck on that. Over and over again, men are told to submit. Women are told to submit. Everybody, Ephesians 5.21, everybody's submitting to each other out of Christ. So that's found over and over again in the Scriptures. We should not be stuck on the idea of, of course we yield to Christ and we yield to one another. Not only that, in the Roman world, submission didn't carry with it the way we carry such negative baggage. Submission in the Roman world, according to Witherington, who writes these socio-economic commentaries, which are very fascinating if you're ever into first century history, and he just writes volumes of this kind of thing. And he says submission in the Roman world was not really about doing what somebody tells you to do, which is pretty much the only way we think of it in our society. 
Rather, the idea was it was the way to ensure stability and order within a family, within a society, within the world, as everybody does what their proper order and proper role is. And that's the way they pretty much would look at it. That was more the big idea. And so what you see Paul doing when he says here in verse 11, let the woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. As you see Paul elevating the women, let them learn. Let them learn so that they can be what God has called them to be. Let them come to spiritual teaching and understanding. But at the same time in this elevation, don't overthrow the proper roles that have been given to you. And you'll notice that's exactly where the Apostle Paul goes. In verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self Control. So listen to what Paul is doing. Elevating the women. You are to learn. You are to participate in this. You are to grow in the scriptures and grow in your spirituality. Let them learn, but maintain these roles. And so here is the picture then is that the learning is not for the purpose of then taking charge or control or exercising authority. That's where that next sentence comes in. It's not we're going to elevate them and now they are going to just take over in terms of the spiritual teaching. No, he now puts a a qualifier in there in verse 12. That they are learning because that is what God has called you to so that you are able to profess godliness through good works. Now, when we talk about teaching. It's important to understand yet again what teaching looked like back then. Because teaching's not just merely I'm presenting information and oh, I learned something by what you said. That happens all the time. We talk to each other and go, oh, I didn't know that. That's not the idea of what teaching is looking like. But teaching has the idea of an exercising of authority. That's why you see that idea in 1 Corinthians 14 when he'll speak of the women who have the miraculous spiritual gifts and yet they're not supposed to use them in the assembly. Why? Well, because that's an exercising of authority. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here as well, is that while they are elevated to learn and to enjoy the spiritual teaching and to become what God has called them to be in godliness and holiness, it is not an elevation to the point where they are told that they are to take charge and teach. And that's where verse 12 is laying out, not to teach or have authority over the man. So I want you to think about what's happening here. Here's Paul saying, while males and females are created together in the image of God, we enjoy the same status in Christ. We are heirs of eternal life. And yet they are supposed to exercise these different responsibilities. And here's the big question. Why? Why is this here? Why is this God's will? Why doesn't Paul just say, you know what, it's a free-for-all and everybody just exercise all the authority you want and you just, you know, 
Because that's in our 21st century culture, that's ultimately where we're coming from. Why is this here? Why is this being said? Why the distinction? Why say that there are different responsibilities? Why would you say that the women have a certain responsibility and the men have a certain responsibility? I mean, think about it. He just divided up men and women in the text and said, men, I want you doing this and women, I want you doing this. Why? 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 Paul knew you were going to ask that. Verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Eve was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Why the different responsibilities? Notice what the Apostle Paul does is he goes back to creation and ultimately goes back to the garden. Now, you might realize with intention, we spent some time in those chapters in Genesis talking about what happened there in regards to the fall. Remember what we saw was that we see both Eve and Adam stepping out of their God-given roles and responsibilities. Do you remember how that played out? I'll summarize it. Remember, she takes charge and he follows. Serpent says, hey, you should eat this. God's, God's holding out on you. And she goes along with that and takes it. And remember, Adam doesn't say, no, 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 what are you doing? This is wrong. He follows along with it. And remember, that was what the curse was describing. We spent a lot of time talking in Genesis 3 about the curse. What was the curse describing? But from now on, there's going to be this conflict between men and women. Remember how that was pictured there? Where we have... She's going to desire you, basically try to overthrow you, and he will dominate you in that curse. There is this picture that is described of almost, if you will, a wrestling match between the two of one trying to be above the other. He's going to try to dominate. She's going to try to be contrary to you. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It's not supposed to be that way. That's the curse. That's what's lost. Rather than the peace and the harmony that was originally intended to exist between man and woman, what would now happen throughout the world is the curse, the conflict, the struggle, the battling between the genders ultimately. And I think that we can see that pretty well in our society. It is interesting for me to just kind of look at the world and go, we should consider why we would ever want to change, bend, or adapt the Scriptures to match our culture today. Think about all the problems that we see in our culture in regards to the relationships of men and women right now. It's been pretty gruesome 
to hear the stories of what has happened in our culture. Horrifying the things that have happened. Uh, my wife and I like to watch documentaries and we started one. We couldn't take it after the like first episode of horrifying what these relationships have done. What we see in our world today is abuse, subjugation, sexualization, manipulation, an all-in-out selfish struggle to get what you want out of the other person. Why would we ever want the Scriptures to match our culture? Why would we want it to conform to what our world looks like? Our world is a mess in what men and women are doing to each other and harming each other and abusing each other and taking advantage of each other. But we want to come along and go, we're you know, so smart by rejecting God. We have a better way. And then you look around and just see the wreckage that has happened to men and women because of this dynamic. It would be like saying, as an example of marriage, you should look to Hollywood. No. (laughs) That would be a really bad idea. And yet that's what we want to do with the the man-woman relationship. Let's let's look at our culture and and ignore what God says. Let's just do what the world says to do. That's not going to work out well. It is not the right path. It's the path of disaster. It's the path of using others, destroying others, and harming others. I think it is really important to see from this text... You will notice that Paul does not ground this argument in culture. Typically in a way to try to make this not valid today, that we don't need to follow this, is to say, well, that was a cultural thing back then. Different world, different times. We live in a more civilized, more advanced, more enlightened time than back then. But notice Paul does not make the argument from culture. He makes the argument from Genesis. And that's really important. That means this is a teaching for all time for all cultures. It's not something that resides only, well, there must have been a problem at Ephesus. And so therefore this is only constrained as a teaching to the Ephesians. And it's certainly not bound on us. No, that's what Paul does. Paul says, this is the way things are because of verses 13 and 14. Because of the first three chapters of Genesis is why this is the way it is. That's what Paul reaches back to. That's the picture that's given to us. And then verse 15 is absolutely beautiful. It is another elevation of the women. Now remember, what did we say the Roman world said about the woman's value? Uh, They bear children. Notice the picture that's given here. She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. We underestimate and I think understate how valuable... And precious what the Apostle Paul says here. 
Because what he is describing is ultimately a reversal of the curse that is occurring through her. Yes, he describes here what happened with Adam and Eve and the fall and she was deceived and he was not, but he followed and they both left their godly roles and responsibilities there and thus the curse comes into effect and afflicts all of the world. And yet there is something beautiful about the picture that it is woman who is reversing the curse in two ways. One, she is reversing the curse because of the unique role that she is given. She gives life. No man can do that. But women can. There is something amazing about that. We sometimes even call it that. We'll say the miracle of childbirth. And unfortunately, what happened in the Roman world and can happen in our world is a total denigrating of that, a slander of that. Instead of seeing life, that is amazing. I remember thinking that when April's pregnant with our kids and it's just this mind-blowing, there is life inside of you. That is astounding. And it is truly a blessing, something precious. That here is the picture of death coming into the world because of sin. And yet one, through her, life is coming out of her in childbirth. Life to the world, life to the world on a regular basis, life to the world. And it will be through her that the most important life will come. Jesus will come and reverse the curse and undo what happened in the garden and undo the curse and bring life to the world and be able to save the world. Verse 15 is the Apostle Paul putting to women and saying they are the givers of life. And to see them in that way and in that Roman world, don't look down upon that. That is not a negative. That should be glorified. How sad it is that our society has thought the same. That God has given women something precious and unique. We as often as a world look at it and go, it's amazing. And the most important The most important image is that it would be through woman that Christ would come. Have you ever thought about that God didn't have to do it that way? He could have just said, here here is Christ, you know, almost like teleport him as human onto the earth. Here you go. Just start him at 30 years old. There he is. You know, it's not like Adam started as a baby, so God can do this. (laughs) He can just have a human man. Here is Jesus. He's 30. Let's go. There's something amazing about the fact that through Mary, very precious life would begin. Such a precious life that you see songs in the book of Luke about what this child would do, who would reverse the curse, who would give life, who would be able to solve this curse and take care of our greatest need. 
What Paul is doing is not piling on, but trying to get that culture at that time, as well as our culture in our time, to take a step back and appreciate the high value and role that was given. The picture that is given here in terms of why the distinction in the responsibility, why the distinction in roles is because without those distinctions, what we have is the curse. Men and women fighting for dominance, fighting for survival, trying to be on top, trying to win, trying to be the one instead of taking what God has given us with the very precious and proper and amazing unique roles that both men and women are uniquely given. So let's conclude this then. What is the whole of all of this? Men, you are to show godliness, show dignity, show your devotion to God by having sincere hearts, praying in every place, holy hands before God, free from anger and free from arguing. Now step back and say to the men again, you must ask yourself, are you full of anger? Full of arguing? Full of a hidden life that's not sincere before God? Women, you are to show holiness, dignity, and devotion to God. By not drawing attention to what you wear, but drawing attention to God through your good works. That is the whole of the picture of what ultimately God is portraying here through the Apostle Paul. Godly devotion will look like this, with men praying, holy hands, without anger, without arguing. Women showing devotion, showing honor, showing godliness, Not through what their apparel, not through what they wear, but through godly living with good works. Both men and women then are ultimately told by Paul, do not mirror the culture. It's amazing to me that 2,000 years later, it's the same problem. (laughs) Why Paul has to tell Timothy to go teach this is because this is always a problem. That the people of God begin to mirror society. And they look like the culture. And they follow what the culture says is right and wrong. The Apostle Paul says, that's not what godly men and women do. Godly men and women act different, behave different, look different. As they show themselves to be the people of God. Each of us accepting our responsibilities of how we display God in the world. We need to elevate men in this this culture and elevate women in this culture for the unique responsibilities, unique roles, the precious things that God has given to men and women to do as the people of God. We have a great struggle in our culture that tries to fight against that. That seems more interested in wanting to beat each other up rather than appreciating, honoring, and valuing 
what makes us different. I did a whole series on that, so I won't re-preach those lessons, but I did a whole series on different by design, that we would glorify and value what makes us different because God made us that way. It's not a denigration that you're different. It's the praise of God to you that you are able to be different. And that's why God made you that way. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, truly amazing to see the Apostle Paul remind us of what we need to be as godly people. God, we pray that for the men, that we would be what we've seen in these these scriptures, that we are not desiring a verbal fight, quarreling, arguing, that we would not be full of anger. Lord, help us to see it if we are. I know that all of us would like to think that this is not who we are, and yet so often it is. Help us to see our sin in this. Help us to remove it from our lives. Lord, may we be able to be a praying people in all places with sincere hearts lifting up holy hands. Lord, we pray for the women in a society that just simply over-sexualizes them, that the women here would be able to live lives of godliness, to be able to show their godliness through their good deeds, and not be brought down by the weight of this culture and the abuse of this culture that says otherwise. We pray that women would be honored throughout this world, throughout this country, that we understand that we are all made to be different so that we could reflect your glory in all that we do. Lord, we pray that we would never seek to assert ourselves, to put ourselves first, that we would do all that we can to reject the the way of the curse that fights with one another, that gets involved in gender disagreements. Lord, that we would live in a world that praises that you made men and that you made women and that you made us different. And you made us different for a reason. And that we would accept that, appreciate it, and glorify it for the wisdom that it shows of you. Lord, we thank you for the life that is in Jesus. We thank you so much that the curse is reversed through your Son and our Savior. That through woman, Jesus came into this world, lived a life of perfection, and died for us. Thank you so much for that life, for all that Jesus sacrificed on our behalf. And we pray that our lives would display glory to you, that we would be far more dignified in how we speak, far more holy in how we live, and that we would reflect your glory and goodness in every place that we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are going to sing now an invitation song. I help you come to Jesus to see him as the giver of life. And so all that Paul does there about godliness funnels into this key truth. It's all about Jesus. It's all about how he reverses the curse and gives us life. We want to help you do that. If you've not been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have not chosen to follow your Lord Jesus, to confess him and to live with him faithfully, we want you to do this very day. Can we help you in any way? Won't you come while we stand and walk?